welcome to another edition of Proselytize or Apostatize. I'm your host, David Russell, along with a new co-host today. His name is Travis Worth. What's up, Travis? Hey, what's going on, David? Uh, super stoked to be here uh, with Dr. Ross. You know, I actually came to fate through reasons to believe, and so I'm really pumped for this episode. That's awesome, man. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're no stranger to the show, so uh, how you been otherwise? Uh, been doing great. Uh, just uh, working on uh, finishing uh, school and everything. Uh, I'm taking a, an apologetics course also that uh, I'm interested in. And uh, yeah, just uh, been doing good. Been doing a lot of reading, a lot of working out, stuff like that. Man, that's that's awesome. Well, guys, we have another non-stranger to the show. He's been here before. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, he's even in our intro. It's Dr. Hugh Ross. <laughs> How you doing, Dr. Ross? Doing well, thank you. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, guys, Dr. Ross is an astronomer uh, and founder and president of Reasons to Believe, an organization dedicated to integrating scientific fact and biblical faith. His books include Weather and Climate Change, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, and Navigating Genesis. We're glad to have you, Dr. Ross. It's always a a pleasure. Like I said, uh, you've been pivotal in our faith, and, and exactly just like Travis, you've been pivotal in his faith. That's very good to hear. Yes, sir. Awesome. So, you know, we wanted to come on because, you know, you, you just recently published a book last year called Weathering Climate Change. I am right. That was last year, right? Yes. <laughs> I think you were talking about it when we were on the, on the line last. Um, and, you know, it's a big issue. And I wanted to talk a little bit about yeah. that and uh, get, get some of uh, – you know, reasons, positions on that. And, you know, Travis, he's actually studying uh, meteorology, right, Travis? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And so uh, I'm very interested in uh, climate change and uh, atmospheric science and uh, even how it plays into theology. And hopefully we can get into maybe some of that uh, during the show. Sounds great. Yeah. So, Dr. Ross, I'm still having trouble with my equatorial mount. Um, I went out to go try to look up, look at some, uh, look at when Mars or not when, when Mars, but when Jupiter and Saturn were crossing and I just had the hardest time with that equatorial mount, you know, and I haven't been smart and bought the electronic mount, but, uh, it's a little too pricey right now, but that and my finder scope is always off. I can never get it on right. So I don't know if you've ever had those problems when you're an amateur, but. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Back when he was like 10. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I mastered that at 10 years old. <laughs> well, two secrets is really important that the mount be perfectly level. Yeah. And so taking a little bit of time to make sure that, you know, it's, it's level and then making sure you got the angle of the equatorial mount set exactly at your latitude. That'll solve a lot of your problems. Yeah. As far as the finder goes, my finder is always off too. So first thing I do is make sure I find some distant object and line up the telescope uh, with the finder and uh, realize next time I use it, I'm going to have to do that all over again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because whenever I look at it, it's like, okay, I got it set. I'm not going to have to worry about it the next time right. around. And sure enough, next time around, I'm, <laughs> I'm all over the place. Well, just setting up the telescope is enough to knock it off a little bit. So yeah. just realize that's what you're going to have to do. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, as we get started here, Dr. Ross, um, again, it's a pleasure to have you. And I always give a shout out to your publicist why, before we get started because, you know, they are the best to work with. I, you know, whoever hires them, whoever goes through your hiring process, they hire the right people every time. So we love working with you guys, and it's always a pleasure to work with you guys. I'm glad to hear that. Great. Yes. So uh, the first thing I, I wanted to get some explanations on, on because, you know, it seems like there's a lot of people that are misinformed. And what is the deal yes. with climate change in general? What What is – what is it? What can we – because, you know, you hear terms thrown around, global warming. We only have 15 years to live. <laughs> you know, you get all sorts of information thrown at you left and right. And, you know, I don't know how many of my audience have actually read your book. But for them, if you could just give us a brief on what's going on, the politicalness in it, everything that, that has to do with climate change, if you could just give a brief explanation. Well, one of the reasons for the controversy is that until recently – we didn't have 
reliable, trustworthy temperature measurements that went back more than 100 years. We do now. In fact, I purposely waited to bring the book out until those reliable temperature measurements were published and reviewed. And so what I put at the very beginning of the book is, hey, this is a reliable temperature record for the past 17,000 years. It's based on 74 different temperature proxies, not just taken from the uh, poles, but taken from all over the world. And what it revealed is that our climate for the past 9,500 years uh, is, has been four times more stable than what we thought before. The global mean temperature over that time period has not varied by more than plus or minus 0.65 degrees. The old data says plus or minus two degrees. The new data says only plus or minus 0.65. And uh, so that begs the question, why has the climate been so extremely stable over the past 9,500 years? And is, actually, is that actually crucial for explaining why we have global civilization? And the answer is yes. We wouldn't have global civilization or a high human population if we didn't have that extreme climate stability. And I spend over half of my book talking about all the designs that have to be in place over the past history of the Earth in order to open up this brief window of extreme climate stability. I want readers to get the point that climate stability is the exception, it's not the norm. Uh, the norm is climate instability. And it's a gift from God that we've had this period of 9,500 years of such extraordinary climate stability. It's nothing short of a miracle. And then the next question is, is it possible for us to sustain this extreme climate stability uh, for, say, uh, another century, another thousand years? Can we sustain it for 2,000 years? And I'm basically saying, no, not 2,000, but we do have the possibility of sustaining it for 14 or 1,500 years. And, uh, you know, if your theology is premillennial, you're going to want that extra thousand years. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so, like, just uh, secondly, you know, what is the current divide in popular opinion, and will this divide push us to the point of no return? Well, I think one reason why this is a political hot potato is you've got scientists and politicians saying this climate warming is real, and the only way we're going to be able to restore climate stability is to encourage the peoples of the world to make substantial economic sacrifices. And, uh, you know, they're overlooking a biblical point. We human beings are fundamentally selfish. Uh, trying to motivate our children, for example, to cut their standard of living by a factor of two or three times, I'm a father. Uh, that doesn't sell. Uh, you know, my sons, even though they're followers of Christ, they say, hey, if it means giving up all my high-tech toys and living on a third of the income I live now, um, I'd rather see the planet go up in smoke than I have to make those <laughs> kinds of sacrifices. And even when I talk about what could happen to their grandchildren, uh, you know, it's interesting. People are not willing to give up their economic well-being. But again, this controversy is ignoring another biblical principle. God told us in Genesis chapter 1 and repeated it in the book of Job, he's making us rulers of the planet, and he's commanded us to manage the planet and its resources for our benefit and the benefit of all the life. What's significant about that is it's implying we do not have to make a choice between our benefit and the benefit of the rest of Earth's life, which means from a biblical perspective, there will be solutions to global warming and climate change that rather than crippling the world economy, will boost the world economy. And there really are win-win solutions out there uh, where we can benefit the ecosystem, stabilize the climate, boost the world economy, and especially for the poorest people of the world. Everybody, and also maximize our health. It's like what there's not to like. 
And basically, my motivation in writing this book, uh, Weathering Climate Change, let's get the politics out of the debate. Uh, I mean, if we can move forward with solutions where it's win-win all the way around, there's no need for the politicians to get involved. Just let the free market take over. And moreover, uh, I think one major concern is we're facing a relatively immediate crisis. If we don't take action soon, it'll be too late. And the only way to get people moving fast is to give them a strong economic motivation. So I load my book up uh, with recommendations where people can get more than 10% return on their investment per year. I mean, if you put that in front of people, they say, I'm going for it. I mean, how many of your investments are returning 10% per year? Yeah, you know that's that's one of the things that that I just uh, I don't understand truly is is all the politics that have evolved with it. But I guess there's money to be made on crisis, you know. And not only that, but like I, I want to know personally. I mean, how much longer can we go? I mean, you know, if we don't start acting fast, where's that point of no return? Well, I got a couple of chapters of the book basically making the point that in order to have our high-tech civilization, we have to be living in an ice age cycle. And we're in that cycle right now. And typically what that means is our planet cycles from 10% ice coverage to 23% ice coverage. And we happen to be in the 10% episode right now. And, you know, the, the ice operating for the past 2.58 million years but the only time in that entire cycle is the past 9,500 years. And actually, what's extraordinary, we have that because of three gigantic asteroids at the right time at just the right location to bring about this period of extreme climate stability. And so one talk I give to audiences, I talk about, you know, the world's best dart thrower, really referring to God throwing darts at the earth, but hitting a bullseye every single time at just the right time and explaining how that made it possible for us to have this period of extreme climate stability. But what you notice in the Ice Age cycle, every single time the global mean temperature has gone up about two degrees centigrade above where we are right now, the planet has dropped rapidly into a deep ice age. And I explain in the book why that happens, is that uh, when you raise the global, you melt the polar ice cap. And when you melt the polar ice cap, that causes a huge amount of snow to fall on Siberia and Canada. The only reason we're not in an ice age right now is that Canada and Siberia are deserts. They only get about 10 inches of precipitation per year. So yes, it snows in winter, but not enough where that snow can accumulate. Now, the Arctic Ocean is covered over by an ice cap, and that ice cap reflects sunlight with 60% efficiency. But if you melt that polar ice cap, that open liquid ocean water will reflect sunlight with only 6% efficiency. What happens to all that excess solar heat that's absorbed by the Arctic Ocean? It makes water vapor, which will fall as snow on Canada and Siberia. So for example, if precipitation over Canada and Siberia were to go up to 20 inches equivalent instead of 10, uh, then the ice accumulates quickly, and suddenly you have more than 20% of the planet uh, covered with thousands of feet of ice. It brings on climate instability. Everybody's got to move to the tropics or the subtropics. So, uh, you know, Europe would be in huge trouble because almost all of it would be covered with ice. You know, and I live in California. Uh, the last ice age uh, came all the way down into Southern California. Yosemite Valley was carved up by the retreat of the last ice age. The last ice age was such that even the port of San Diego was clawed with ice throughout half of the year. 
Yeah. So, what I have another question, and this is kind of silly because you know you hear this all the time, <laughs> but what role does the sun play? Because over the years, you've heard this a lot that hey, you know, the biggest determining factor of our climate is the sun. So you know, some people just go with that. And let's let's talk about what is the sun's role. Well, the sun has a role. It's got a very long-term role. I mean, as the sun gets older and older, uh, it becomes more efficient in converting hydrogen into helium in its nuclear furnace. So the thing we've noticed is over the past 4 billion years, the sun has gotten about 23% brighter. And uh, that means, for example, uh, you know, a few million years from now, we're not going to be able to live on this planet. The sun will be too bright. Uh, but that's very long-term. That's not going to affect the climate over thousands of years or even hundreds of thousands of years. Most people, when they refer to the sun, talk about the sunspot cycle. The sun goes through an 11-year cycle where we've got more or less spots covering the surface of the sun. And that does affect the temperature of the surface of the Earth. And so one of the things I've done in my book is basically to show you the temperature record uh, over the past century and over the past several thousand years uh, where we average the temperatures over a decade. Because if you average the temperatures over a decade, you basically take out the effect of the uh, sun. Uh, you know, that 11-year cycle is uh, uh, very steady. It's the same every time. And so, uh, yeah, the uh, temperature might drop uh, over a year. But if you average the temperatures over a 10-year period, uh, it's very constant. The sun's impact uh, really has no contribution to the global mean climate uh, at all in terms of, you know, changes. All right. Well, so, uh, yeah, Travis, I'll kick it to you. Yeah, uh, Dr. Ross, I'm kind of curious. What is your response to the atheist objection of natural evil? You know, that these uh, atmospheric conditions can seem indifferent to our well-being. I'm thinking of like hurricanes, tsunamis, forest fires, tornadoes, and things of that nature. Well, I've written about that in several of my books, uh, more than the theory in particular, making the point that, number one, we need the laws of physics to be where they are in order to see an efficient eradication of evil and suffering by our Creator. I mean, Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, which as a physicist I think of as a second law of thermodynamics. Romans 8 says the entire universe is subject to a pervasive law of decay. In this creation, everything is decaying. Uh, but that principle decay is crucial for restraining the expression of sin and evil. And Romans 3.8 tells us the laws of physics, gravity, electromagnetism, thermodynamics, those laws are going to remain in place until the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have been redeemed. In the new creation, there will be no gravity. There will be no electromagnetism. There will be no thermodynamics because in the new creation, there's no possibility of evil being expressed. So there's no need for those laws. But where you've got those laws, you're going to have hurricanes. You're going to have earthquakes. Uh, you're going to have tornadoes. You're going to have disease. But we notice is in the context of those laws of physics, they're all at the optimal level. So, for example, if we had fewer earthquakes and volcanic eruptions than we've got today, human civilization would be impossible. We need plate tectonics to recycle the nutrients that we need. Uh, you know, those volcanic eruptions are fertilization events. We need those. And what's really interesting is that the Ice Age cycle actually works in such a way that when the ice is rapidly melting from the previous Ice Age, it ignites volcanoes all over the world, which fertilizes the great agricultural plains and explains why uh, we can feed billions of human beings, uh, given uh, the resources that we have here on planet Earth. So volcanoes play a very uh, productive role. And you even see that short term. Every time a volcanic uh, volcano on an island erupts, people get a warning. They leave the island because they can feel the earthquakes. So they leave the right. island. As soon as the eruption's over, 
they come back. You know why they come back? They know that they're going to have very rich soil and they're going to have a bumper harvest. So they keep coming back to these volcanic regions. Uh, and likewise, hurricanes, uh, they play a role as a thermostat for the planets. So if we had fewer hurricanes or less intense hurricanes, uh, we would have uh, much worse situations. And we see that with everything we call a natural disaster. If you make it more, things get worse. Make it less, things get worse. Wildfires, I mean, again, I've addressed a whole book on this, making the point that these things we call, uh, you know, moral, uh, natural evil, they're not natural evil, they're optimal designs. Every single one of them is optimally designed uh, to make human civilization as pleasant and as productive as possible. So I look at things like wildfires, hurricanes, earthquakes as gifts from God in the context of the laws of physics he has set up to permanently eradicate evil. Right, and uh, I really like how, how you mentioned the teleology involved. And so I'm wondering, would you say that the precision in the laws of physics increases for like, you know, what we need for like a simple advanced life than to say moral agents who can launch a high-tech global civilization where, you know, moral decisions can be made in a, in a sort of moral theater? Would you say that the precision in the laws of physics increases with each category? Well, you can go to reasons.org slash fine-tuning. That will pop up for you a 300-page fine-tuning compendium. And what I've done in that compendium is answer your question. This is the fine-tuning you need of the universe, our galaxy, our planet, and what's happening in the Earth's surface in the context of uh, bacteria, of microbes. Right. And then say, okay, this is the fine-tuning you need if you want to have plants and animals. And what you see is you need exponentially greater fine-tuning for plants and animals than you do for microbes. And I say, okay, now, what is the fine-tuning requirement if you want the equivalent of human beings? And there again, it goes up exponentially compared yes. to what you need for plants and animals. But where you see the greatest exponential requirement for fine-tuning is the fine-tuning that's necessary for billions of humans to live on one body in the universe where several billion of those humans can be redeemed from their sin and evil. And what I've discovered in that context is every component of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, and every historical event in the universe, Earth and Earth's life, plays a role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings. And I've actually challenged my secular scientific scientist peers saying, look, I know you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, but if you'll simply uh, do your scientific research from a biblical redemptive perspective, it will make you a better scientist. You'll be more successful in making scientific discoveries. So I'm actually using that as an apologetic tool, saying just put this to the test. Uh, you know, let's do scientific research in that particular context and see what happens. Right. I think that's a great point. And we can see such a, you know, uh, an intelligence and intentionality, you know, when we really look at the laws of physics, you know, like you're mentioning. And, you know, uh, going back to climate change and how this, you know, relates to the fine tuning and everything. What do you think are some reasonable approaches we can do to start, uh, you know, making steps in the right direction? Like what can we do reasonably? Well, I've got two whole chapters in my book about, you know, these are things we can do immediately uh, that will boost the world economy while it stabilizes the climate and while it benefits the world's ecosystems. And so I made the point, for example, that uh, the Sahara Desert today is bigger than Australia. Uh, in the days of the Roman Empire, it was only 10% the size it is today. We made it bigger by stripping the southern edge of the Sahara of vegetation, and people use that vegetation for cooking fuel. In fact, a few decades ago, the Sahara Desert was advancing south uh, by six miles per year. It slowed down a bit, but it's still growing. And so 
one solution I recommend is why don't we give the sub-Saharan peoples uh, all the kerosene they want for free? I mean, they, they need cooking fuel. They need heat. Let's give them all the kerosene they want for free on the condition they work with us to replant the Sahara Desert. And in a generation, at most two generations, we can restore the Sahara Desert to what it was in the days of the Roman Empire. We could plant wheat there, for example. We could plant rice, uh, other grains. And, uh, and all that vegetation would soak up huge quantities of greenhouse gases. The crops that you would have there uh, could be sold. Uh, it could feed the poor peoples of the world. In fact, in the days of the Roman Empire, Europe was fed by the grain in what is now the Sahara Desert. And so the North African peoples would now have a, a substantial source of income. Uh, the food, you know, food prices all over the world would drop, so everybody would benefit from that. And we would restore the ecosystem. Wildlife would return to uh, the Sahara Desert. So again, everybody wins. We could do the same thing with the Gobi Desert. Uh, and then I got a, a piece on forest management. Probably the thing that's getting the greatest attention today on climate change is concern about the Amazon jungle. You know, the Amazon jungle is responsible for half the oxygen we breathe. It's one of the greatest stores of carbon uh, in terms of vegetation in the face of the earth. And yet, just in the past uh, 50 years, almost a quarter of the uh, Amazon jungle has been cut down and converted to pasture land because people think they can make more money on uh, uh, raising beef than they can on uh, uh, harvesting lumber. And I basically show in the book that's short-sighted. The soils of the Amazon are way too poor to sustain ranching for more than a few years. If we keep doing that, we're going to basically turn the Amazon jungle into a desert. It's remarkable. One of the wettest places in the world we can literally transform into a desert and uh, everybody loses. And so what I propose instead is, okay, let's uh, do selective lumbering in the Amazon jungle. Because you've got people saying, we have to preserve the Amazon. Let's just ban all lumbering. And uh, I don't think that's going to work. People there need to make a living. So let's say, okay, what we're going to do is you can go into the Amazon and we're going to have you cut down the old trees. And it's the old trees where you're going to make the most money because they're really big trees. But we're going to harvest them while they're still healthy, not when they're beginning to decay. Because once they decay, they release carbon dioxide and methane to the atmosphere. So we cut them down before they start releasing our greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. We replant them with younger trees. And studies have shown that young trees will grow about twice as fast to four times as fast as the old trees. So having more younger trees in the jungle will pull a whole lot more greenhouse gases of the atmosphere. They also provide more habitat space for the wildlife that is there. So the ecosystem will benefit. The rainfall will increase because you're going to have more transfer, transpiration of water to the atmosphere. So it's going to uh, cause the rainfall to go up, which is a good thing. You're going to store way more carbon, and you actually make the most money uh, in terms of your lumbering. Uh, because instead of clear cutting, you're selectively cutting out the most valuable trees and replanting them. Of course, it's also important to leave some of the big trees in place, because a few of those big trees play a role in sustaining the ecosystem, uh, but there's a whole lot more you should be cutting down. And incidentally, we need to be doing that in our national parks here in the United States. If you've ever been to our Western National Parks, you'll see anywhere from 10% to 35% of the trees are dead. It's because we allowed the trees to grow way beyond uh, what the ecosystem can sustain. Uh, we would be wise to let lumbering companies go in and selectively harvest the trees, pull out the most valuable trees. If you thin the trees out, that stops the bark beetle. The only reason why the bark beetle is devastating our national forests, the trees are too dense. And when they're too dense, they can't get enough water in there to fight off the bark beetles. 
and now the tourists are going to be happy. Instead of going to a national forest where all you know a third of the trees are dead and they look yeah. ugly, and there's no wildlife there, you now got a healthy forest, and it's not so thick that you can't walk through it. Walking through a forest in a national park is a fun thing to do. Oh, sure. uh, so I mean, again, everybody wins. Uh, in fact, uh, you can tell the government, hey, if you got a healthy national forest with lots of wildlife in it, uh, you can cut the fees down because now you're making money off the lumbering companies. You don't have to charge as much to the tourists. The tourists are going to like it. And uh, again, everybody wins. Yeah, I think that's so amazing because, you know, going back to Genesis and how God made us stewards of the planet, there's so much, uh, you know, and how, you know, a lot of this is due to our decisions. So I think that's a really great point. Well, I'll give you another one. Uh, I mean, look how much of our uh, diet is dependent on beef. And uh, it's a red meat. It's very tasty. People love it. It's rich in iron. Uh, but it also is loaded with saturated fat and cholesterol. And so we could replace beef with ostrich meat. And uh, ostrich, ostriches, where you raise the quantity of meat, uh, releases 2% of the greenhouse gases that cows do. So you could substantially drop the release of greenhouse gases by transferring our dependence from beef uh, to say, what's ostrich meat like? Well, it's red, just like beef, very rich in iron. In fact, it's more nutritious uh, than beef, but extremely low in cholesterol and saturated fat. It's one of the healthiest meats you can eat. And if you raise the ostriches the right way, it would become the cheapest form of meat on the market. You could actually, uh, if you scale it up appropriately, you could literally deliver meat to the market for about half the price of turkey, which currently is the cheapest meat in the market. So again, it's a huge boost to the economy. You don't need, the one downside is this, uh, a lot of ostrich farms have failed here in the United States. Why? Because people try to treat their ostriches like they do cows. You can't do that. They're highly social animals. They need contact with one another. They especially need contact with the ranchers. They really bond well to human beings. So it's different from the cows, where you kind of send them loose out in the field. You can ignore them for a year. Ostriches are not like that. If you ignore them, they're healthy grades. But hey, wonderful creatures to be around, and they produce eggs. So it's actually to our advantage to spend time with the ostriches on your farm, because they're not only going <laughs> to produce meat, they're going to produce eggs, they're going to produce feathers, and uh, if you socialize them properly, they're going to be a lot healthier, and hey, they're fun animals to be around. I mean, they make great pets. And uh, you know, I had an uncle in Nova Scotia who was a farmer, and he said, if you really want to have really high quality meat, make pets out of all your animals. <laughs> Man, you see that? I, I don't think I could do it. I. I... I would, I would get too attached. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I've got a cousin, and you know, we would go to his place and say, you know, doesn't Elmer really taste good? <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Yeah, once I got close to it, I don't think I could kill it. <laughs> but I don't know, Hugh. This is Hard. also this is this, a, this is a tough one because I don't know what type of ribeye the ostrich has, and I really like mm. ribeye. <laughs> Well, I can tell you, I've had uh, ostrich steaks, and uh, oh you know, wow, tender, uh, but you can't see any fat in the meat. I mean, it's super lean. Yeah, and, oh. uh, and, and fat, people, fat makes it good. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can say that, but I mean, once you take it, I think you'll be you'll be won over. I mean, it's it's an incredibly tasty meat. Yeah, you definitely piqued my interest. I do want to try it. So. Yeah. You know, one of the things, though, Dr. Ross, another thing, you know, you hear about what we could do about it, but the politicians, what you just described and what you have in your book is totally different than what the politicians say. And well, I want to know, I, I mean, what is, what is the big divide here with the scientific community and the politicians here? 
Well, people have referred to my book, Weathering Climate Change, as the anti-Al Gore book. You know, Al Gore brought up the book Inconvenient Truth. And the reason he gave it the title Inconvenient was global warming. And in his opinion, the way we solve it is laws. Let's shut down all of our factories. Uh, let's get rid of uh, gasoline-powered cars. Make everybody drive electric cars. And, uh, you know, all these that they want to pass basically to force us to do what we don't want to do so we can stabilize the climate. You know, and again, I live here in California. By 1935, uh, there's going to be no more gasoline-powered cars. It's all going to be electric cars. But then living here in California, say, where do we get our electricity? We get it from mainly natural gas. And uh, that converts uh, uh, the heat of that burning into electricity with only 25% efficiency. I drive an automobile uh, where the efficiency is above 40%. And so the government is uh, from using my green car so that I can get an electric car that's not as green as a car I already have. Right. Now, it would be different, for example, if I was living in British Columbia. Uh, British Columbia has got so much water power resources, they can get all their electricity uh, from water power. And uh, that's really cheap. And so I'm saying, yeah, if you can get a cheap form of electricity that's not fossil fuel based, you've got a winner. But you've got a loser if you're having to generate the electricity from burning fossil fuels. California is saying, well, we don't want the fossil fuels. What we're going to do in the meantime is blanket California uh, with wind turbines and with uh, solar panels. Wind turbines are not green. You, you'd be amazed at how much carbon has to be consumed to manufacture if they have to be maintained. And moreover, you've got to tune them for electricity. There's a wind farm not too far from where I live, but most of the windmills aren't turning because they're tuned to a particular wind velocity. And if you don't have the wind velocity, you're not getting any, or you're getting very little electricity. And they kill birds. Yes. Uh, tens of thousands of those uh, veins. So, and it's a real job to replace the veins. Mm. Are a lot more eco-friendly, uh, but to generate sufficient electricity, you basically got to cover the ecosystem with panels. And suddenly, you can't have wildlife underneath the panels. Right. So now you've got another problem. Moreover, <laughs> the panels we have today are not that efficient. I'm all excited about using a mineral from the because it's about three times more efficient in generating electricity than we have right now. So we can develop that technology and uh, basically turn it into a roofing material, which means when I have to replace my roof, I just put the stuff on it. And, you know, yeah. with the right incentives, we could have roofing material where the 100% of the roof would generate electricity for the same price of a standard roof you have today. Again, everybody wins because you don't have an ecosystem under your roof anyway. The roof is there. And, uh, you know, again, living in California, they gave me a huge tax incentive to put solar panels on my roof. But I can tell you, only about a quarter of my roof is covered with solar panels. So, and without that subsidy, there's just no economic incentive to do it. So thanks to the taxpayers, I've got solar panels on my roof. But it's like, that's really not a free market solution. What we need is to find a way to motivate people to cover 100% of the roof with solar panels uh, for the price, same price or less of a regular roof, uh, where it generates electricity three times more efficiently than current solar panels. If we had that, everybody would do it. I mean, the idea of being able to eliminate my electric bill, that'd be great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know what, one thing that helped us allow, a lot was uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, what is it, the, uh, the, the windows in the roof, you know, the... 
the right. I can't remember the name of them. Skylight. Skylights. Yeah. yeah something like All that. day I'm I'm sitting in with the skylight. I don't have to turn on any lights and stuff. That was a big help, but I mean it's not near what you're talking about. But I think that if people would just make like maybe some minor adjustments, they would actually benefit a lot from it too. Um but well, exactly material you can put on the sides of your house that would generate electricity. Moreover, uh, there's a new invention that came out where you wear clothing uh, that regulates the temperature of your body. And so you could actually buy these uh, thermoelectric clothes uh, that can cool your body by 10 degrees centigrade or warm your body by 10 degrees centigrade. Which means when I go to the office, we can turn off the air conditioner, we can turn off the heat, we just have everybody regulate the clothing they're wearing, and uh, you know we're all fine. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. So, Hugh, uh, here comes another point here. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of hinted, but I want to I want to ask it just so we can get it out there. What is the greatest cause of global warming? Well, it's been a big debate, and this is also political. Is the global warming natural or is it human cause? And I have in chapters two and three the new evidence that tells us the human activity is by far and away the biggest factor. And actually, that's not totally a bad thing, because 8,700 years ago, the natural cycles generated by the changing tilt of our rotation axis and the changing shape of Earth's uh, orbit about the sun uh, were working together to cool the planet. And normally, that would take us deep into an ice age. But thanks to this particular asteroid that struck in northwest Greenland uh, 12,800 years ago, uh, instead of the climate sharply dropping, there was a brief period of climate stability, which allowed humans to launch civilization. And the launch of civilization warmed the planet at the same degree that the natural cycles were cooling it. And those have been in near-perfect balance until 1950. In fact, from 8,700 years ago to 1950, uh, the natural cooling was slightly greater than the effects from human activity that were warming the planet. And over those 8,700 years, the global mean climate cooled by one degree centigrade. And I have a little graph in the book where I just show you this uh, gradual cooling. And there's little variations, but the variations are very tiny. And you basically get this general cooling trend. Uh, but starting in 1950, it reversed. And what happened in 1950 is the advance of human technology and population exponentially increased. And so for the first time, uh, the warming from human activity superseded the cooling from the natural cycles. And so over the, over the past 70 years, the global mean temperature has gone up by one degree centigrade. So right now, we're exactly where we were 8,700 years ago. But the concern is if we continue that trend that we've seen over the past 70 years, we're going to melt the polar ice cap. And we melt the polar ice cap, that's going to drop us into an ice age. And I tell you in the book, what are the signs that we're at the tipping point? The signs will be Number one, you'll first see an increase in the accumulation of snow and ice in western Greenland. And if that's followed by an increase in snow and ice in Labrador, then you know an ice age is coming, and it's coming really soon. Do we see that evidence yet? Not yet. We're not seeing that yet. But if we begin to see that, then we know it's too late. And so that's kind of like the canary in the mine. Let's watch Western Siberia. And in fact, I argue that another canary would be, let's measure the rate of retreat of the winter ice cap, the winter polar ice cap. It's clear that uh, there's been a significant retreat in the summer ice cap. But more important is the winter ice cap, because it's during the winter time that snow will fall. I mean, if you melt away the summer ice cap, that means more rain's going to fall over Siberia and Canada, and that's not going to be a problem. However, we melt the winter ice cap. 
now we're going to get a lot of snow falling. And uh, we've seen some retreat of the winter ice cap, but not enough to be a worry. But I'm arguing we need to watch that very carefully. Watching that will tell us uh, whether or not we need to take immediate uh, steps. But I'm arguing, let's give people the economic incentive. Because if we give them an economic incentive, we're not going to have to pass any laws. They're going to go ahead and do it because it's going to put more money in their pocket. All right, Travis, back to you. Yeah, uh, so as a Christian, I'm wondering, what role do you think climate change could play in the end times? Uh, we're told in uh, the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation uh, that just before the second coming of Christ to planet Earth, uh, we're going to see incredible chaos. A lot of people interpret Revelation as saying it's going to be doomsday all around, but if you actually read the text carefully, it's talking more about chaos. Chaos. And we've seen a lot of economic chaos over the past 30 years, especially if you compare the stability of the economy over the past 30 years with what it was 100 years ago. So some people are arguing we're already beginning to see that. But if you look at Revelation and Isaiah, really major chaos, uh, and not just chaos. There's going to be chaos politically. There's going to be chaos and the ecosystems. In fact, there is a passage in uh, the book that says that in the days before the return of Christ, humans will begin to pollute themselves to death. Uh, to human-induced pollution, uh, but also tells us uh, that Christ will return, and that when he returns, he's going to stabilize everything. So, you know, I'm frankly premillennial in my theology. I do believe that Christ will return, and he'll reign for a thousand years on planet Earth, and during those thousand years, it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's going to be you know, we have Christ ruling as prime minister of the entire world. Uh, he has perfected Christians coming back with him uh, without moral defect. They're going to be magistrates. So there's going to be a period of time. And actually, my theology is this. The reason for the thousand-year millennium, notice it says in Revelation that the beginning of that thousand years, he locks up Satan which means no longer can we blame Satan for the things that we do that we shouldn't do. He says, no, I got that guy locked up. And frankly, my interpretation of millennium, God takes away every human excuse for why we commit sin and evil, except for the real reason. So people say, well, uh, it's the economy. I was raised in poverty. And God says, I'm going to take that away. No one will be poor anymore. And they're going to say, well, it's just terrible government management. No, you're going to have the best government you can possibly think of. It's going to be a compassionate government. And uh, people are going to say, well, I was brought up in a bad family. Well, I mean, yeah, children will be born during the millennium. But the millennium begins where 100% of the human population is Christian. And uh, they're going to be in, and people are going to say, well, I didn't even know there was a God. Well, he's going to be on television every day. You're going to be able to see him. And so the idea that I didn't know that there was a God or unjust laws, every excuse will be taken away. And what I find interesting, it says no one will consume meat during the millennium. Because a lot of people think, well, carnivorous activity is the reason why we sin. So it says, well, you think that's the reason? I'll take that away. But the real reason why we sin is what we see in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. We sin because of the evil in our human hearts. The reason we sin has got nothing to do with what's outside. It's what's inside. And we notice in Revelation, from a premillennial perspective, Christ reigns for a thousand years on planet Earth. It's idyllic, just like the Garden of Eden. But at the end of the thousand years, he releases Satan from his prison and allows Satan to go throughout the world to tempt the children that have been born during the millennium. And what does the text say? It says the majority of those human children 
will choose to rebel rather than to submit to the authority of God, the ruler of planet Earth. So making the point, it's not that you didn't have enough evidence. It's not that you didn't have a good economy. It's not that we didn't have righteous laws. The real reason is you didn't want to submit to the authority of Christ. You didn't want a relationship with Christ. And I'm running into these atheists to say, how do believe in a God that sends people to hell? And I says, no, it's a loving God. God allows you to spend eternity wherever you please. If you want to spend eternity in relationship with God, he's got a place absolutely nothing to do with God. He's got a place for you. You get a choice. Everyone chooses where they get to spend eternity. God's not going to force a relationship with him. He gives you a choice. And hell is simply a place uh, where you have no longer have to have any contact with God. If you want nothing to do with God, that's really going to be the best place for you. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And uh, I hold to a thousand-year reign of Christ myself. So you would kind of see it as like, a restoration or restoration maybe of the laws of physics, you know, in the atmospheric no, not laws of physics. I think the laws of physics will be, in, after all, tells us in Romans 8, they will remain intact and constant until the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have been redeemed. And redemption will still be occurring during the millennium. And so they'll have to choose what they want to spend eternity with God or eternity without God. It's not until the end of the thousand years we see a change in the laws of physics. And that's when God says, hey, everyone who wants to spend eternity with me, I'm going to take you to the new creation. It's going to be a completely different realm. Even the dimensions will be different. There won't be length, width, height, and time set us free to experience geometric relationships, not just linear relationships. I mean, no one can imagine how great and wonderful it will be. In the new creation, Travis, you're going to be able to spend intimate one-on-one -on -one, uh, relationships with billions of other people simultaneously. You know, people ask me, how come there's no marriage in the new creation? It's not necessary. You can spend eternity with your spouse, but at the same time, you can spend eternity in loving relationships with billions of other angels and human beings and God himself. Impossible in this creation, but it will be impossible in the new creation. And so why doesn't God give us that now? Well, if he gave us that now, evil would run completely out of control. Restraining us to one dimension of time prevents the spread of evil to the degree it would happen if we were in geometric time. Likewise, be under the uh, uh, gravity and thermodynamics and electromagnetism, those all work. You actually see this in Genesis chapter 3. Notice when Adam and Eve rebel against God, God tells them, from now on, you're going to be experiencing more work, experiencing more pain, and when you get to Ecclesiastes, you're going to be wasting more time. And that's a direct consequence of the laws of physics. The laws of physics are set up in such a way that the more we sin, the more work we have to do, the more pain we experience, and the more time we waste to restore the damage as a direct result of our sin. Thermodynamics guarantees that. Uh, you know, I have a closet. If I leave it alone, it gets messier all on its own. But if I sin, it gets messier, therefore I have to work harder. And notice what you see in Genesis 3. It's not work for the first time. He says extra work. It's not pain for the first time. It's extra pain and extra wasted time. And notice we're biologically designed. None of us enjoys uh, needless work, needless pain, and wasted time. And so the laws of physics actually are in place to motivate us to avoid evil and pursue virtue and the process discover we need help. I can't do that on my own. But there's a God out there that loves me to such a great degree, is so incredibly intelligent and knowledgeable 
and the powerful, he's able to make a way and to provide a means to do for me what I can't do for myself. So the laws of physics are actually a teaching tool, telling us, yes, we need to avoid evil and pursue virtue, but we don't have the resources to do that, but there's a God out there that does. And if we go to him, he'll provide us with the resources. Right, and I would definitely recommend to the audience uh, Beyond the Cosmos and why the universe is the way it is. Uh, I think you make some really great points of that. And I even love in Beyond the Cosmos how you know you use uh, like spatial dimensions of how God would necessarily transcend the 10 plus dimensions of the universe and how awesome it is to have a relationship with a trans-dimensional, all-powerful God. So I would definitely recommend those two books to the audience. Yes, I, I would too. Uh, all Hughes books are good. <laughs> and, and can you tell the fans, Dr. Ross? <laughs> I I would like to get you on here to uh, discuss some of those ideas with some of our uh, philosophers that we get on here about the end time. So we, we tried to have a, a panel discussion yeah. on the uh, on on revelations and it was it was kind of fun. So but yeah, well, that would be fun because, as you know, Christians have all different views. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, there, millennialism. But I think the key is to put it in a redemptive perspective. I mean, I interpret my science from a redemptive perspective. I also interpret my Bible from a redemptive perspective. To me, that's how you can keep the 66 books consistent. Yeah. Well, you know, Dr. Ross, uh, I mean, we're, we're coming to a close here. I only have one more question, but, uh, I, you know, I think I, I might pass on that to ask this one. That it's, it's similar. But... You see a lot of uh, scientists, I, I don't know a lot, because you see all, all sorts of numbers when you try to Google this, but you do. there, there are some scientists that say this global warming thing isn't really a, a thing, it's not man-made. Why yeah. is there such a debate? It, it, you know, it, you're presenting all this evidence. What are they basing their statistics and evidence on? Well, I think the basis of the global warming deniers or the climate change deniers they're looking at the solutions, and they don't like the solutions. It's basically big government telling us what to do. And uh, so people don't like being bossed around. They especially don't being like told by big government, you need to make sacrifices for the benefit of the planet, for the benefit of the poor, and for the benefit of wildlife. And we're going to force you to make those sacrifices. I think that's what's driving uh, the reaction uh, to the evidence. So, yeah, so, uh, as a scientist, the evidence is strong. I also do think, however, as a scientist, is that there's been way too much evidence on carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is only one of several greenhouse gases. And if we focus on carbon dioxide, we're probably going to have the unintended consequences of increasing methane in the atmosphere, or the nitrous oxides, or the chlorofluorocarbons. Those are also uh, significant greenhouse gases. And I think a big overlooked factor is black carbon soot. I mean, I was born and raised in Canada, and uh, parts of Canada are warming up five times faster than the rest of the world on average. And people are saying, how can that happen? There's hardly any uh, industrial activity in the north part of Canada. Well, the reason it's happening is that coal-burning plants in India and China emit this black carbon soot particles, and the weather patterns drop all that uh, over Canada and uh, over uh, eastern uh, Siberia, which explains why those regions of the world are warming as fast as they are. And I'm trying to make that point in weathering climate change. If we don't integrate our response to global warming, we're going to wind up with an unintended consequences, and we could potentially make things worse than they already are. I mean, one big factor I'm worried about here in the United States is it looks like the new administration wants to ban all oil exploration, wants to ban fracking. And what's been interesting is that if you get your electricity from natural gas as opposed to coal, you release only half the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But by banning fracking, you're basically forcing people to get their electricity from coal, which makes things worse. Or you're forcing people 
to import their natural gas from overseas, which means you're going to have to burn a lot of fossil fuel to get that stuff from overseas over here to the United States. So it would be far better off in the meantime uh, burning fossil fuels that are local because you won't have the transportation issues and if it's natural gas as opposed to coal, uh, you're going to actually drop uh, your carbon footprint. Matter of fact, the carbon footprint, the United States is one of the few countries in the world that's reduced its carbon footprint. And the prime reason why we have is fracking. Fracking is a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, you don't want to keep that up forever uh, because it is a fossil fuel. But temporarily, they can hold you over until you come up with these other solutions I talk about. And what I haven't mentioned is what I call thorium nuclear reaction production. And people say, we got to ban nuclear power plants. Well, I'm kind of with them if you're talking uranium. But if you're talking thorium nuclear reaction, number one, it's impossible to make weapons from thorium nuclear reactors. Uh, and you get way more electricity per pound of thorium. It's about 100 times more efficient than what you get from uranium. Um, and it's, it's impossible to have a meltdown. Uh, and you don't have to wear protective gear to mine the thorium. And there's three times as much thorium in the crust of the earth as uranium. The United States is super rich in thorium. We have a lot of it right here. So it makes a lot of sense from my perspective. Let's build these thorium nuclear reactors. And within a short period of time, that can eliminate the need for fossil fuel energy production. And we can use our fossil fuels to make plastics, which I think is a good economic uh, strategy yeah. for the use of our fossil fuels. So you're saying that we have the means, we have the capabilities, we just need to put it into action. Right. Well, I think we just let people know. I mean, one reason why I wrote my book is I said the reason why people aren't pursuing these economic avenues, they don't know they exist. So let's get the word out. I mean, I find it interesting that a lot of my physicist peers are saying, hey, nuclear fusion's the way to go. Well, the technolo te technological difficulties, the only way you're going to get electricity out of nuclear fusion is to build a stable magnetic bottle. Uh, but for 80 years now, we've been trying to make a stable magnetic bottle without any success. Whereas we know thorium works. We've already proven that. We had thorium reactors in the 1960s. We just had to scale them up. And it'd be far cheaper in terms of electricity production. You say, well, how much can you get? If we were to go thorium, uh, we could produce 100% of the world's energy needs from thorium for at least a thousand years. That will get us through the millennium. Wow. Right on. Travis, uh, you got anything else? Uh, no, I've just, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You know, uh, I have such a passion for uh, atmospheric science and uh, I really like, uh, you know, how uh, Dr. Ross, you know, put it in terms of like the theology involved and, and everything. And, uh, yeah, I recommend everybody check out Reasons to Believe. In fact, it's had such a powerful impact on me. I decided to join Reasons to Believe in working on my certificate of apologetics. And so, uh, yeah, I had a great conversation. And guys, anyone can get a free chapter of Weathering Climate Change just by going to reasons.org slash Ross. Right on. Right on. So you guys heard Dr. Ross. Eat those ostriches. And <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just joking. No. There is a weathering climate change with Dr. Hugh Ross. Uh, we've enjoyed the time that you've given us, Dr. Ross. I know we went about five minutes over. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. We love reasons, and uh, that's it for today, guys. We uh, have a debate tomorrow on the problem of evil against myself, who is actually taking the debate chair. I'll be in the hot seat against mm -hmm. Cassiano Montana from uh, Zambia in Africa. So it should be fun. Tune in. Um, it's going to be a pre-recorded again. Sorry, guys. The lives uh, are not this week or next week, but we will have them soon enough. So thank you very much, guys. Have a good day. Take care.